Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a, a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day on this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, And those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest. For the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to even the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. Yet there were a group of people that the writer is writing to who is ready to abandon Christ. To give up on Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews reminds us that the core of unbelief is an evil heart that neglects God's word. And the writer expands and enlarges the theme of rest that began in chapter 3, verse 11. And the word rest is used several different ways in this section. The first way that it refers to is God's Sabbath rest spoken in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2, and then repeated in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4. The second way is Canaan. This is the rest for Israel that was promised. Remember, the children of Israel were delivered from Egypt, and then they were promised a rest In Canaan. And number three, the believer's present rest in Christ in verse three, and then again in verse 10. And then number four, the overcomer's present rest in victory. There's a kind of rest that we experience because we experience victory in verse 11. And then the the future eternal rest that's spoken of in heaven in, in verse nine. Part of the challenge that you have to come to grips with is that the writer of Hebrews is chastising the reader because they were willing to believe God for the promises to save them out of Egypt, but not bring them to a place of victory and overcoming in the land of Canaan. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. Warren Wiersbe writes, God's Sabbath rest is a type of our present rest of salvation following the finished work of Christ on the cross. God finishes the work of creation and Jesus finishes the work of salvation on the cross. He writes, it's also a picture of the eternal Sabbath of glory. 
Israel's Canaan rest is similar to the life of victory and blessing that we gain as we walk by faith and claim our inheritance in Christ, unquote. And so you as a Christian, you may have believed and said, I believe that God is able to save me because of the death of Jesus on the cross. And then you wondered whether or not God also has the power to give you victory to overcome the present problem of sin. And that's the challenge. And that's the warning. And it begins with a warning. Do not fail to enter into God's rest. And I'm going to try and help you understand because the passage is difficult. But look what it says in verse 1. Therefore, remember when you see a therefore, it refers back to all that's been said up until that point in chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. Verse 7 in chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, don't harden your heart. Why? Because remember, they believed that God would deliver them out of, their, out of Egypt, but then they hardened their heart after their release. The Lord God promised a rest to the children of Israel after the release from Egypt. The children of Israel failed to enter into that rest Because of persistent rebellion and unrepentant unbelief, they failed to enter into the rest of God. And so here's part of the point. The children of Israel had an option. They were saved from Egypt when they believed God's command Concerning the blood, you remember the story. You'll sacrifice a lamb. You'll put blood on the lintel. You'll put blood on the post. And if you'll put blood on the lintel and blood on the post, guess what? The plagues that will come upon this place will not come upon you. You will be delivered. You will be saved. You won't die. And they believed God and they slaughtered the lamb, placed the blood on the lintel. Later, they were challenged by a second command. Get up and go possess the land. And that's where the problem came in. They were faced with a decision. Go on or go back. And for many of the children of Israel, instead of going forward, they went back. And it becomes a type and a picture for these Hebrew children. The writer of Hebrews is saying, a real Jesus loves you, died for you. You believed God and you believed his promises concerning salvation. And the Hebrews were left with that same very decision Are they going to go forward in Christ or are they going to go back to the rules, rituals, and religion called Judaism? Are they going to walk in grace and mercy and forgiveness? Are they going to go forward or are they going to go back? And so the writer wants the reader to know that there was a rest available for them and that there was a rest still available, a rest that must not be ignored or rejected. The rest that he's offering is the rest that comes to the person who wants to live a life of victory. Not just experiencing what it means to be delivered from the penalty of sin, but what it means to walk in a way where you get to overcome the power of sin in your own life. And so what is the rest? Peace in suffering and trial. 
victory in what looks like impossible situations. Remember the children of Israel are coming out of the land. They're walking through the wilderness. And when they're walking through the wilderness, guess what they get? Unlimited food falling from heaven. They strike the rock and it pours forth water. Their clothes never disintegrate. Their shoes never disintegrate. They never have to go to Kohl's and buy new dresses. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Is it possible for a group of people living in an entitlement culture where constant food is given to them and constant water is given to them, food, clothing, and shelter is always provided for them. They don't have to work. They don't have to till the ground. They don't have to fight the enemies. They don't... They don't have to come to the border of Canaan. Remember, there are people who are living there and they don't have to fight them and they don't have to do battle and they don't have to take risks. And so so they go, why should I go into battle? And why should I take a risk? and, And why should I do any of those things? And so the children of Israel decided that they weren't gonna go into the land and they weren't going to rise up. And when you do battle, sometimes there's suffering. And when you face giants, you really do run the risk of winning or losing. And so the writer is going to use metaphors throughout the book of Hebrews. The rest in our spiritual Canaan is called going on to perfection or maturity in chapter 6, verse 1. It's called the full assurance of hope in chapter 6, verse 11. It's called inheriting the promises in chapter 6, verse 12. But there are some people who are willing to remain immature. And there are people who are willing to to experience not the assurance of hope, but the non-assurance of a life lived disconnected from victory. I had a call on my radio program today from a person who just basically said, well, nobody's perfect. And I said, are you, are you actually literally seriously trying to tell me that that's your reason for not wanting to obey God or not wanting to obey Christ or not wanting to go forward? Is that seriously going to be your reason to continue in disobedience? And so when the writer says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it, Some of you might be troubled by that. Well, wait a minute. Look what the Bible says. Let us fear. I thought the Bible says we're never supposed to be fearful. But there is a kind of fear that you should be fearful of. The fear that you're never going to live a life of of abundance, of, of joy, of victory, of what it means to experience the presence of God and the joy of God and the marvelous ministry that God has entrusted to you because you're living a life of rebellion and disobedience and you're constantly wondering if you're going to go back to that old kind of life. Paul understood this. Paul understood the thing that Paul feared the most wasn't that he was going to lose his salvation. That was never a part of the fear that Paul ever expressed. What he was afraid of was that he was going to lose his reward. He was afraid that he wasn't going to be used by God to the fullest extent according to the ministry that was entrusted to him. St. Gregory of Nisa is credited with saying, True perfection consists in having but one fear, the loss of God's friendship. There are certain things that you should be appropriately concerned about. And that is that you're not walking with him in the intimacy that he's called you to. You're not walking with him in the victory that he's called you to. 
And that becomes the point. Remember the Hebrew Christians were going through a time of trial. They were going through a time of testing to determine what was in their hearts. And maybe that's what you're going through. You're going through a time of testing. You're going through a time of trial. And in this book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, a time of testing, a time of trial. Chapter 12, a a, a time of persecution in, in verses 3 through 14. In chapter 13, verse 13, suffering, trial, pain, testing. And you're thinking, well, you know, when I, before I started going to church and before I started reading the Bible and before I started you know, doing the God thing, my life was relatively okay. But remember, you're, you're forgetting the worst part of being an unbeliever. Don't you remember the emptiness and don't you remember the loneliness and don't you remember the darkness and don't you remember the guilt and don't you remember living in uncertainty? And so the writer of Hebrews understands that people who walk in obedience and submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ are going to experience a time of trial. They're going to experience a time of testing to see what's inside of their hearts. And the Hebrew Christians were being tested and they kept wondering, okay, I wonder if now's the time to just simply go back to my old life as a regular Jewish person. This messianic believer stuff is way too hard. When I decided to become a messianic believer, my family abandoned me or rejected me or walked away from me. And so the writer says, I'm going to give you some real reasons to go forward in maturity and victory. It says, for indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. The Lord offers freedom. He offers victory in Christ. And so when the writer of Hebrews says, for indeed, the good news or the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, what is he talking about? The gospel that was preached to the ancient Israelis living in Egypt was that you are in bondage and in slavery and God is willing to release you from your bondage and in slavery if you'll love him and walk with him and serve him. And that's the gospel of the New Testament as well. You were in darkness and in bondage to sin and God is willing to save you in Christ. So the Lord offers a freedom, a rest in victory in Jesus. But they were in danger of falling short. So God has given him his word. But they would not, look what it says in verse 2. Mix it with faith. What does that mean? God spoke to them. They heard what God had to say. But they wouldn't mix it with a confidence or trust. Here when it says, But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. Faith in this particular instance is a synonym for trust. In in what way? There are lots of things that God can say to us. God has said a lot of things to us. The issue isn't whether or not there's a famine of God's word... It's whether or not we're going to hear it and believe it and mix it with trust. And so here was the idea. They would hear what God had to say, but they wouldn't apply it to their lives. Once again, we're reminded again of the role, the role that the word of God plays in the life of the believer. And this is one of the things, again, where we we sit here and we think, okay, what is it that you want, Lord? What is it that you want, Lord? And the Lord says, I'm going to reveal it to you. Open up your Bible and I'm going to speak to you. You open up your Bible and you read about 
things and you read about the children of Israel and only the most dense person is not able to see that God is using these men and women and these circumstances as an illustration of your life, of the problems that you face and that I face. And so, let's see if we can discern the writer's train of thought or argument. I want to help you think it through because I know some of you reading it are thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Let me see if I can help you. God promised a rest for his people, Israel, in verse 1. The people failed to enter into that rest, verse 6. The promise still stands because Joshua, in verse 8, didn't give them this spiritual rest, even though Joshua led them into a physical land. The writer of Hebrews is trying to convince the Jewish people that he's writing to that the rest wasn't just simply Moses turning over the ministry to Joshua and then Joshua leading them into the land and the Jewish people occupying the land. There was a physical occupation of the land, but also there was a spiritual necessity to occupy the promises of God, which they didn't do. Otherwise, David would never have spoken of this rest hundreds of years later in Psalm chapter 95. And so the writer is arguing, Moses didn't bring you into this rest. Joshua didn't bring you into this spiritual rest. The spiritual rest still existed, but wasn't entered into hundreds of years later when David wrote the Psalms, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3 is trying to convince you that Jesus is that rest. Jesus is the sum and the substance of the rest. And so the conclusion, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God in verse 9. The writer relates the rest to the Sabbath rest of chapter, uh, of verse 4, and then again in verse 10. Why? Because God does something. He creates something. He is at work, and then his work stops. He's not talking about the seventh day rest. What he's talking about is the reality that God was at work just like he was at work in the life of humanity and then God sends Jesus and then Jesus lives and dies on a cross and rises from the dead and guess what? The work of salvation is over. Now remember what I said. There's several different kinds of rest being spoken of. There's the full, confident, complete, eternal rest that comes when you become a Christian and you enter into that rest when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It is the free gift of God. You don't have to work to enter into that rest. It's given to you for free. When you become a Christian because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you've experienced salvation, now there's a journey that you take as a Christian. There's a journey that you take as you begin to understand and embrace the reality of the ministry that God has called you to, a life of joy, a life of service, A life of obedience. And that's a rest that you're going to have to work at. And so the rest is a complete rest in Christ. Remember in Matthew 11, 28, Jesus said, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The rest that Matthew 11 speaks of is the rest of salvation. The gift that you receive by faith. 
And so in verses 2 all the way to verses 11, even though it may be difficult for you to understand and follow, the writer is given reasons why it's a good idea for you to rest. What are the reasons? The gospel's been preached. A gospel of deliverance and salvation, both to them and us. The Lord has sent his message. Again, I'm going to repeat the question. Why is it a good idea to rest? The writer says, you've heard the gospel. The gospel's been preached. There's a gospel of deliverance and salvation. The Lord has sent his message. What is the point that the writer is making? The point that the writer is making is there's no excuse to ignore the message or reject the message. Think about what the good news or the gospel being preached is. You don't have to be in bondage. You don't have to be in slavery. You don't have to live in fear. You don't have to live in the heartache of wondering what your life really means or the direction that your life is taking. But the word which they heard did not profit them. Why? Because Israel didn't mix the word with faith. Why? Because when God would speak, they wouldn't believe him. And we have to hear the word of God and we have to believe the word of God. And so this is the point. The children of Israel rejected the promise of God's word, a promise of a rest for their soul as they're delivered from Egypt and a rest of inheriting a promise and of living a life of victory and overcoming in a land that was promised to them. And so our responsibility to believe, the writer is making this point, is even greater than the children of Israel. With the children of Israel, they saw the miracles of being delivered from Egypt. They saw the Red Sea being parted. They saw the plagues that came upon Egypt. They saw a pillar by day and, and a, a fire by night. They saw all of those things. And the writer of Hebrews is saying they had Moses. They had the law. They had miracles. They had mighty acts of deliverance. But you have Jesus. You have Jesus. You have the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the miracles of Jesus and the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus and the true and living Jesus who is alive, not only to save you, but to keep you. And then to remember, he gave you a promise of the Holy Spirit who was going to come and live inside of you. And so there's one greater than Moses, one greater than the law, one greater than the miracles. No wonder the writer of Hebrews has said in chapter 3, verse 12, Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you with an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And so now in verse 3 it says, For we who have believed do enter that rest. Remember, there's two kinds of people. Those who don't believe and don't enter the rest. And then there are those who do believe and do enter the rest. So he said, so I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What does the writer mean? Believers enter the rest. Unbelievers do not enter that rest. What has God sworn? The, the unbeliever will not enter that rest. I, wa I want you to think about this really carefully. Because imagine there's a person who goes to church. They hear the promise of God. They hear the Bible. They read the story of the gospel. They hear about Jesus. But they don't believe it. They believe certain things. They know that sin is real. 
And they know that hell is real. But they don't want to depart from their sin. But they also don't want to go to hell. Who does? But they don't want to believe in Jesus and they don't want to trust in Jesus and they don't want to love Jesus and they don't want to submit to Jesus. So they want all of the benefits of being saved, but they don't want to believe him and they don't want to trust him and they don't want to rely on him. And what has God sworn? What has he sworn? He has sworn that the unbeliever will not enter into that rest. The unbeliever is without hope. That the person will argue, but they want hope. The unbeliever only has trial and suffering and emptiness and loneliness and accident and disease and temptation and death. They have all of that and no hope. Why? Because the Lord has sworn they shall not enter my rest. Why? Because they continue in their unbelief. Why? Because God has made promises and they won't believe the promises. There's no peace. There's no deliverance. There's no salvation. There's no new day. There's no second chance for the unbeliever. In John chapter 3 verse 18 it says, He who believes in him, that is in Jesus, is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that's why Paul also wrote, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved. And so in verse 4 it says, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way and God rested on the seventh day from all his works and again in this place they shall not enter my rest. He's quoting the psalm, and as he's quoting it, the very fact that they did not enter into God's rest, here's what the writer is arguing. The very fact that he promised a rest, and then they didn't enter the rest because of their unbelief, the writer says there is such a thing as rest. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. True statement or false statement? It is a true statement. But imagine a person says, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe that Jesus will give me hope and I don't believe he'll give me forgiveness and I don't believe that he'll give me rest. So somebody asks, do you want forgiveness and hope and rest anyway? Yeah, but I just don't want it in, in Christ. Again, do you, do you begin to understand the fact that there is a rest for God after creation Proves that there's a rest for that creation. The Lord creates all things. The Lord experiences a profound satisfaction. In other words, you know the story in the opening chapters of Genesis. He creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything. He creates the sun, the moon, the stars. He creates the birds, the bees, the flowers, the trees, the moon up above. And a thing called love. Yeah, for you old enough to remember the song. He creates all of this stuff. And then he rests in a complete satisfaction. And so that's the idea. We can experience a satisfaction and a joy. And so in verse 6 it says, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, the writer uses God's promise. The promise land, the Canaan rest as proof for a real rest for the people of God. I, I need you to think about what's being said. 
The fact of God's rest, the promise of God's rest, mean that there must be some who will enter that rest. God's promise and rest must not simply exist absent human beings to take advantage of that promise. The writer is basically saying what you already know. God doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. That should make sense to you. God doesn't make promises that he doesn't keep. The the other way we would put it is God does make promises which he always keeps. And so therefore, some must enter the Canaan rest of heaven. But I want you to see what's written between the lines. And what's written between the lines is, it might as well be you. Can anybody be saved? Yes. Can everybody be saved? Everyone who will place their trust in Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Not everybody's going to trust Jesus. I recognize that. Will anyone trust Jesus? Some will enter. They heard the promise. They heard the preaching. And so you've got two groups of people. Those who hear and believe. And those who hear and ignore. And their disobedience was evidence of their unbelief. And their unbelief caused them to walk in disobedience. The disobedience was evidence of their unbelief. And their unbelief caused them to walk in disobedience. And you can see how these two things fed each other. Haven't you ever met someone who said, I don't believe you. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe you. And so again, it says in verse 7, again, he designates a certain day. Saying in David. And when he says in David, he's speaking of David as the psalmist. In other words, they didn't have, uh, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 95 verse 1. The, the, the chapter and the verse designations didn't exist when the book of Hebrews was written. But in verse 7 when he says, Saying in David, today, after such a long time as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the writer's way of saying, God promised a rest to the children of Israel. God repeated the promise hundreds of years later. When David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote in Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion the rebellion in the wilderness, and in the day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they proved me, though they saw my work. What's the writer saying? The rest existed in David's day. The moment that David wrote it in the book of Psalms, in the year of about 1000 BC, it's hundreds of years after Moses and what was taking place in the book of the Exodus and, and their failure to occupy the land. And so here's what the, the writer is arguing. Did the promise of the rest apply to the Israelis? Yes. Did it also apply to David? I want to ask you a question. David is the king of Israel. The children of Israel are in the land. Do the children of Israel occupy the land? Remember during the time of Saul and David and then later Solomon, there's a united kingdom. 
They're not occupying all of the land, but they're occupying the land from Dan to Beersheba, which is their way of saying from the very, very northern part of, of, of the country to the very, very southern part of the country. They're occupying the land. They're occupying the land. But again, the writer of Hebrews is saying you're occupying the land, but you're still not occupying the spiritual rest based on the promise. So then he says in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Here's what he's saying. To the Hebrew who's reading these words, he's saying, wait a minute, I've read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I've also read the book of Joshua and the occupation of the land and how this becomes the, the occupation of the promise. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, for if Joshua had given them rest then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. In other words, his argument is, if Joshua's rest is the spiritual rest that was spoken of by Moses, then how do you explain the fact that David says that we haven't entered into the rest even though we've entered into the land? He's hoping that the good rabbi, the good Jewish person will say, he's got a good point there. The writer is arguing again, that if Joshua had brought them in fact to the place of rest, the Holy Spirit wouldn't have spoken of another day. In Psalm 94 verse 7 it says, Yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Understand you senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear shall he not hear. He who formed the eye shall he not see. He who instructs the nation shall he not correct the the." He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are futile. This is the psalmist way of saying, who invented the ear? God. Who invented your eyeballs? God. This is the, the, the psalmist way of saying, if God invented eyeballs so that you could see, and if God invented ears so that you could hear, and if God invented a brain so that you would think with it, do you think God thinks and God hears and God sees? Does it make sense to you that there would be a God who would invent an eye and he sees nothing, ears and he hears nothing? So did Joshua provide the rest? I think the right answer is this. Joshua provided some rest. Did he provide a complete rest? The answer is no. Because God's rest is spiritual and eternal. And God provides a confidence and a peace both in this life and in the life to come. Look at verse 9. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Do you understand what you're reading? There's a certain kind of rest that we experience when we come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A confident rest, an assured rest, a peaceful rest, if you will. Do we have to be saved over and over and over again? No. Jesus saves us. But is there a kind of a rest that remains? A rest after walking through a lifetime of trial? Suffering, difficulty, and in that trial, in that suffering, in that difficulty, you learn to trust the Lord. You learn to rely on him. We grow in grace and in the knowledge of the truth. We move from immaturity to maturity. We move from a life of sometimes failing to failing less. And then failing even less and experiencing victory 
and then experiencing more victory and then experiencing a total victory. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Verse 10, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. It's almost impossible to understand this unless you understand the whole context. And as you look at the context, what does this mean? It's okay for you to say that, by the way. And I know that for many of you, you're going, what in the world is he talking about? What does this mean? Does the verse apply to man who enters into the rest found in Christ? Or can this be a person who comes to Christ and the trials and the temptations end? I don't think that it can mean that. Can you imagine if this means once you come to Jesus, suffering, trials, temptation, pain, gone. By the way, has that ever been anybody's experience? Oh, look at all the hands in the room. Uh, That would be no hands. Because again, the real experience of real Christians is, hey, wait a minute, I I came to Jesus and there were more trials. There was more pain. There was some more suffering. There were some more setbacks. We know that trials and temptations continue in this life. But here's the difference. We know that we are given the tools and the resources to conquer trial and triumph over temptations. So what's the writer trying to prove? There's a rest for God's people. And there's no greater proof of that rest than the triumph that Jesus experienced over death in his glorious resurrection. You remember the humiliation that he experiences as he is suffer and as he dies and as he is killed. And then all of a sudden it looks bleak and dark, but he comes back to life. He experiences a glorious resurrection from the dead. Jesus accomplishes the work of salvation and redemption and he enters into his rest. Remember, he will ascend into heaven where the Bible says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And so in verse 11, it says, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest lest anyone fall. According to the same example of disobedience. What is the example of disobedience? The failure to enter into the land and occupy the land because of hardness of heart Rebellion and unbelief. Once again, we're warned. We can come short of God's rest. Well, how does that happen? We fall back into the old patterns of unbelief and disobedience. How does that happen? We stop reading our Bible, we stop praying. Have you ever met someone who was so frustrated because they were praying, they were praying, they were praying, they were going through difficulty, they were going through trial, they were going through temptation, and they're praying, and they're praying, and they're praying, and they're praying, and they don't think that they're hearing anything, and so their prayers disappear, and pretty soon all they're doing is praying over their meals, and then only half-heartedly because they find themselves in a situation where they don't really expect anything from God. And so the writer says in verse 11, let us therefore be diligent. In in Hebrews, there's plenty of meat. But every once in a while, you'll be tossed a little green lettuce Let us, therefore, be diligent. The word diligent translates the Greek word spodadzo. Doesn't that sound like something you should be eating for Thanksgiving tomorrow? Hey, look, I'm bringing the spodadzo over. (laughs) 
But spodazo is a Greek word which means to labor, to endeavor, to give all diligence. It's a word that means to be zealous. It's a word that means to strive eagerly. It's a word that means to exert yourself. It's a word that means work in exertion with all of your might. Now, again, this might seem counterintuitive and even contradictory. But what he's saying is work hard. At resting. I know you're probably wondering, well, wait a minute. How do you work hard at resting? The writer of Hebrews is saying there's no place for lethargy. There's no place for laziness. There's no place for apathy. Remember Israel's experience. Israel's experience is They manufactured ignorance concerning God's rest. They wouldn't enter into God's promises. Remember, they would hear God's word and they would grumble and they would complain and they would grumble and they would complain. And and remember, 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 remember. They would labor for a while and then they would walk with God for a while and then they would believe for a while and then they would go back for a while and then they would come back for a while and then they would leave for a while and then they would come back for a while and then they would serve for a while and then they wouldn't serve for a while and then they would make a little progress and then they would make no progress. Just like some of us. Opening up our Bible, closing our Bible, praying, not praying, going to church, not going to church. In Luke chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus said, strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. How do you work hard at finding that single passage. And then once you find that single passage, you go through that passage. And then you work hard to get to a life of victory, to get to a life of overcoming. Jesus said, I'm the, the, the door and I'm the gate. Where is the gate? Jesus is the gate. How do I get to the gate? You have to get to Jesus. How do I pass through the gate? You have to renounce your sin. The gate is only big enough to allow you to pass through. I'm only going to briefly touch on verse 12 and we're going to come back and visit it. But let me read it to you. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. When you're reading that, does it seem out of place to you? You've just read all of this stuff, and then you have this powerful, wonderful verse 12 concerning the word of God, and you go, where did this come from? Well, the word of God is divine in its source. This is why it's called the word of God. The word of God is living in its nature. This is why it's called quick or living. The word of God is powerful and it's working. And the word of God is cutting in its operation. And the word of God is minute in dividing what it separates. And the word of God is critical in its analysis and its ability to discern thoughts and intents. And the word of God is double in its construction when it says it's like a a, a knife that cuts both ways. The point that the passage is making is that the power of God is found in the word of God because the word of God exposes the thoughts and the desires of the creature and no one is immune from its power. It has the ability to expose and reveal and transform. And it's the antidote to the hard heart of unbelief. The word of God is a piercing sword. 
Isaiah says this in Isaiah 49.2, And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. It's his way of saying the word of God is like a sword and, and, and it's like arrows that are polished, that must hit their target. The Bible refers to the word of God like a mirror reflecting our life, like a burning fire that convicts us in Jeremiah 23, 29. It burns and consumes us. The word of God is a pounding hammer which crushes the hardest heart. And the word of God is a reproducing seed that takes hold of us and produces new life in us. And we are born again by it. And the word of God is seen as nourishing food for the believer, a guiding light for the believer, and cleansing water for the believer. And so you've got to understand Understand when people study it and believe it and make it the priority of their, their, their life, things change. And that's why people don't go to church either. Because when you teach the Word of God, it pounds you, it pounds you, and it hounds you, and it hammers you, and it washes you. And it makes perfect sense to me. That the reason why people won't study it or believe it or make it a priority is because their heart is hard. It's hard. And when you open up the Bible, you can feel it cut you and you flinch when it pounds you and you You feel the burning sensation when it exposes our raw rebellion against God. Close it. Because it hurts too much to keep it open. We're going to come back and visit verse 12 and 13. But let me just say this. And there is no creature hidden from its sight. His sight. But all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Again the writer of Hebrews says God sees everything. God knows everything. And the Lord knows if you believe him. And the Lord knows if you've received him. And the Lord knows if you've made a false profession. And the Lord knows if you've made a false confession. And the Lord knows if you've entered into his rest. Or if you haven't. And so the writer invites the reader to leave unbelief behind. To leave the hard heart behind. The writer of Hebrews is inviting the Hebrew person. Who's content. With just simply being saved. But they have no desire whatsoever to live a life of victory. A life of joy. A life of usefulness. Why not choose rest? John Phillips tells the story of a missionary in Africa who offered a ride on the back of his pickup truck to a national who was walking along the road and this big man was carrying a big burden and he got into the truck. And as he was in the back of the truck, The missionary continued down the road and after a couple of miles, he looks in the rearview mirror and the man is standing stiff in the truck, the burden still on his back. And the missionary pulled over and he said, why are you still carrying your load? And the African man said, I did not know that the truck could carry me and the load. And that's how some people are with Jesus. They get on board. And they can't believe that Jesus can carry them and their sin and their trial and their suffering. And their temptations. 
But Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. He invites us to lay our burdens down because there's the rest that we experience when we're saved. But there's also a rest that comes in knowing that you can live a life of consistent victory, overcoming sin and temptation and walking in joy and victory. But we'll have more to say about that the next time we meet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a difficult passage, but in the most simple way possible, Lord, the passage is warning us to not go back. The passage is encouraging us to go forward. It doesn't make sense to go back. It doesn't make sense to go back in rebellion and disobedience. It it doesn't make sense to go back in hard-hearted unbelief. It only makes sense to go forward. It only makes sense to rest. And so, Lord, we know that you've picked us up. (laughs) And you've invited us to lay our burden down. And we're given a choice to go forward or to go back. Lord, I pray that each and every person would make the decision to go forward in Christ, to go forward in joy, to go forward in hope, and then to experience rest. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Amen.